Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I once again have with me Elizabeth Bonneman, Media Evil's Doctor Who expert, to talk with us about season 19 serial, The Visitation. Hello. Hello. I return. <laughs> I'm back once again. <laughs> Just in case this happens to be somebody's first time tuning in, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about Doctor Who? So I am a student of medieval history. Uh, it will be my college major when I can afford to go back to college. And also once it's safe to go to like a college physically, yeah. I know more about Doctor Who than just about anyone. So uh, a few months ago, I was I was talking to Sarah, and I found out that she had never seen an episode of Doctor Who. So this has just sort of become a thing now. And this is our fourth, the fourth serial that we've covered for the show. Yes, which now means that I have seen four serials of Doctor Who. Exactly. Yes. And that I still am continuing my tradition that I have yet to see the same Doctor twice. Yes, and and that trend will be broken with the next one, because the next one is from the very next season, and it still has Peter Davison. Ah, uh, well, I know way too bad, but you know, he's fine. I don't <laughs> mind seeing him again. Yeah. The Visitation is a 1982 serial. It's the fourth serial of season 19, starring Peter Davison as the fifth Doctor. He's got a real look with his striped he pants does. situation. He's got, well, well, it's it's basically he's dressed as a 1920s cricketer. Like, yeah, that sounds right. I was it's, thinking it's he looked like full, he was going to play some very actually in, in the in the very next serial. He actually gets to play some cricket. So, hmm. so in that context, he looks completely in in the context that that outfit looks like. The rest of his time on the show, he he looks. I mean, he sticks out like a sore thumb, but the doctor always sticks out like right. a sore thumb. It's right. kind of his thing. Yeah, so he certainly does not seem as though he belongs in the 17th century, or, but then who does? True. Certainly not any of his companions either. Uh, uh, Matthew no. Waterhouse is Adric, and Sarah Sonnen as Nyssa, and neither of them are actually human. Is that correct? Correct. They, neither of them are human. Adric is a kid from from a planet called Alzarius, where he tagged along with the Doctor because he found Alzarius boring. And uh, Nissa's backstory is a little more tragic. She comes from a planet called Traken, which was destroyed by the Master, and she happened to be off the planet at the time with the Doctor, so she is the only survivor of the destruction of Traken. So oh, wow. she doesn't really have anywhere else to go, but it's yeah. the only the only human in the in the TARDIS at this time is Tegan. Right, who is trying to get back to Heathrow in 1981 and right. uh, seems so in, to not be succeeding in that. Right. So in in the last episode with the fourth doctor, the one where he regenerates, well the last serial with the fourth doctor, Tegan wanders into the into the TARDIS thinking it's an ordinary phone booth. And okay. uh, accidentally gets whisked away. And so basically the arc of this season, such as it has one, is we're trying to get Tegan home. Mm -hmm. But of course, the Doctor is not the best at steering the TARDIS. Right. Even, even <laughs> these days. And so he keeps missing. So in this one, he's he's actually managed to get the location exactly right. But they've shown up 315 years early. <laughs> Oops. Oops. <laughs> 
So we have Janet Fielding as Tegan, and then also I'll mention uh, Michael Robbins as Richard Mace, who is a local individual who hangs out with them for basically the entire serial. Yeah, and he's fun. He's a fun yeah. character. Like, I was almost kind of wondering if he was going to come with them, but... Uh... I, yeah, he. I mean, he. every so often there's a character who gives off strong companion vibes, but ultimately right. decides to stay where they are. Richard Mace is definitely one of those. Yeah, so he's uh, he's fine. I enjoyed him. The first section, the enumeratio. I'll begin with just a very brief recap of the serial. The Doctor is attempting to bring Tegan to Heathrow, but arrives 300 or so years too early. They encounter a group of Terraleptils, which are aliens that basically look like very large lizards, who it turns out are fugitives from their home planet and therefore now attempting to take over Earth, which they plan to do by killing off the entire human population through basically biological warfare. In other words, yep. a genetically engineered version of the bubonic plague. Yep. <laughs> they do successfully defeat the Terraleptals and leave, but only after accidentally starting the Great Fire of London. <laughs> yep. I love this serial. It's, it's so fun. <laughs> I really liked this one. I really liked the way in which it intervenes in history. I think it's fun that they actually did end up changing something or, or in a way, but it's actually something that always had happened. I always kind of find that aspect of time travel fun when it turns yeah. out they were meant to be there and do something all along, essentially. A fun note from an earlier serial, back when the fourth Doctor was flying around with Sarah Jane uh, in the serial The Pyramids of Mars, the Doctor mentions that he was like, I was falsely accused of starting the Great Fire of London. And now we find <laughs> out that he did start the Great Fire of London. It was just a later him. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't know that yet, that it was true. Exactly. That, he, that the accusation was 100% true. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and every, every once in a blue moon, the Great Fire of London get, gets brought up in later stories. And the Doctor always gets this very uncomfortable look on his face when it's brought up. <laughs> <laughs> he has an interaction reaction to the whole thing so uh but we'll, we'll get there when we get to the end so we begin at the 17th century manor house with these people that i was like oh are these going to be characters and the answer is no they will never be seen again <laughs> because they immediately get killed by the teraleptals or the teraleptals like androids that they have or also somebody, I think the, the, the teraleptal right the, the teraleptals have this one android and it looks like kiss collaborated with elton john on the design yes it's <laughs> this hilarious is the, this is the glammiest most glam rock robot i have ever seen <laughs> But then it also has this mask, which is like the stereotypical like debt, like face of death, or maybe the bad, like the mask that the bad guy wears in the Scream movies. Yeah, could be either. Sure, <laughs> I haven't seen the Scream movies, but it's but it looks like it could be. Yeah, so it's like it's it's an interesting set of choices that uh, inform the android. Oh yeah, the uh, the Leptals, when we get to them are also very low budget eighties in their design is how I would describe them. Oh, like yeah. it's these like giant lizard costumes that are like sort of ridiculous looking. Classic Doctor Who has always been infamous yeah. for for low budget <laughs> effects because it is a it is a fairly low budget show, frankly. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean it's clearly is like some like weird lizard costume that some dude yeah. is wearing, right? Yeah. Like Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. These people in the 17th century see a couple of shooting stars or a comets or something and some fireworks. And like some of them are very excited. And at least one of them is like, this is definitely the bad sign. 
think it's a strange lights in the sky never bode well for the future and like well in doctor who that certainly is the case That's, yeah it, it usually means that the alien invasion of the week is starting <laughs> exactly so they're all dead the doctor and his companions then arrive at heathrow but just a little early for tegan's flight uh-huh she's like maybe i can i don't know file a claim to the land i'll be I'll be rich in a few hundred years' time. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, I, I always arrive early at the airport, and even I think this is excessive. They have to fight off a few villagers, but make friends with Richard Mace, who starts out as just this, like, weirdo hanging out in a tree, who's basically like, you want to be friends? Yep. <laughs> he's got a very, he's got a very, I think he's maybe trying actively to channel Robin Hood. <laughs> right, yeah, which actually I think makes sense because uh, I mean we'll talk a little bit more about highwaymen later but he we find out is a both thespian and highwayman and uh, this is very much a period I would say in which there is every now and then something of an effort to romanticize the figure of the highwayman and in particular with these kind of references back to the Robin Hood legend yeah who I believe actually this might be in fact quite the period in which Robin Hood has more of a kind of real like stealing from the rich to give to the poor sort of reputation i actually watched a video about robin hood overly sarcastic productions legends summarized and i believe that is that this is probably the the right era for that to be true yeah yeah i I didn't look that up in advance so i could be off by you know 30 40 years or something here and there but i didn't uh, intentionally look it up and i definitely didn't take notes on it but it is a thing i watched recently but yeah but 17th century seems about right for that so it it makes sense he tells him a little bit about what's going on we learned that the plague is currently ravaging both the city of london and that it's actually even worse in the countryside at this point they also he's got this kind of weird item of jewelry which they find out is a bracelet thing that basically it turns out that like the aliens can use for mind control although i guess it only works for that if it's on your wrist if you wear it as a necklace you're fine yeah and also it doesn't it only works if it has the power pack in it, which, right. which yes. Richard's neck, which the one that Richard has turned into a necklace does not have. Right. And they find kind of more bits and pieces of these bracelets and power packs and therefore have definitive proof of there being some kind of alien presence. And like they eventually find the ship too, obviously. Yeah. They know that somebody else is here who probably isn't supposed to be here, and they end up breaking into the manor looking for answers. The first episode ends with them being basically locked into this small enclosed space by the android with his fabulous outfit. Yes, they hear the key turn in the lock behind them, and I, th- I think the doctor has has actually vanished from the room at this point, and they're yes. kind of... They're kind of alarmed because it's like, this is like, I left him down here and there's no way out. Where did he go? (laughs) Right. So the doctor disappears. Then the rest of them get locked in and they're like, what the hell is going on? Where's the doctor who just locked us in? But it turns out that what happened is that the wall is fake. Yep. It's like a hologram that the the Terraleptals have put in place to hide the, the basement where they set up their base and... And the and the doctor like realizes that something's wrong because he's like this stairway people build stairways to lead to somewhere right <laughs> so this stairway should logically head from the main hall down to the kitchens except there's a brick wall here 
Right. So, and so it's like a staircase to nowhere. And so it's like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And yeah, and that's how he yeah. is able to figure it all out. So he then comes back through and lets the rest of them out in that direction at the beginning of the next episode. They continue to explore the manor. Mace is having a grand old time now that he's gotten used to the fact that he was like a little nervous about like sneaking into this uh, nobleman's abode. He's got like a strange sort of morals where it's like breaking and entering is wrong, but stealing is fine. And and uh, Tegan and Nyssa are like, no, no, breaking and entering is fine. It's stealing that's wrong. <laughs> interpreting it not even necessarily is that he thought the breaking and entering was wrong as opposed to that it was stupid i mean that's also a fair point and that but that once he has broken and entered he might as well steal some shit since he's already gonna yeah. get in trouble if he gets caught for the breaking and entering part yeah he's like oh hey wine <laughs> right he's like yeah if you find some wine i'll take some and i think like tegan at this point has this like is like very judgy about this right she's like stealing is bad and he's like i'm a highway man and she's like this isn't a highway <laughs> <laughs> yes that's like it's a good line <laughs> they're in the cellar mace gets himself some wine which you know good for him and they find some cool caged rats which is always fun mm-hmm. nice Nice little pet play grats. Uh, not, and uh, not foreshadowing at all, uh, I'm not sure. Foreshadowing at all, right? I mean, you know, it's the 17th century and you see some plagues, like, what do you expect, right? Yeah. Or sorry, you see some rats, what do you expect? Sure. But the android shows up. He shoots Tegan and Adric. The rest escape. Everybody is so slow in this scene. So it's again, like, the special effects are just so funny because they clearly, like, don't quite have it together for like a really like a dramatic fast-paced fight scene yeah everyone is just like moving extremely slowly and like doing these like slow motion blows and it's like why couldn't couldn't you have i feel like you could have grabbed them and like and gotten them out if you just ran yeah i mean i think they were like stunned unconscious or something so right the doctor can't the android like... moves so slow that i feel like they could have gotten past him True. So yeah, it's just a very like funny effects moment. Actually, actually, I think the doctor is like trying to like point that out because he's he's trying to get Richard to come back down with him to the basement to like mm-hmm. help carry them out. But right. but Richard, of course, is like, I'm not going back down there. Death is down there. Right. Like he's like, I'm not here for this, dude. Yeah. Which fair. So Tegan is now in captivity and is being questioned by a lizard-like alien who we'll find out is the uh, the Terra Leptils, which of course is like. Pretty close to being just uh, an anagram for reptile with like a couple extra letters in there somewhere. Yeah, pretty close. They're yeah. they're they're lizardmen. Pretty generic yeah. lizardmen. Yeah, some lizard dudes. He starts questioning her. At some point he calls her stupid, to which she responds that that's not a very original observation. <laughs> yeah. Tegan is, well, uh, aboard the TARDIS, like, Adric is an established mathematical genius. Mm-hmm. And and this would be impressive, except that the Doctor and Nyssa are, like, objectively, demonstrably smarter than him. <laughs> right. I mean, Nyssa is actually, like, Nyssa, like, builds this whole machine at some point that we'll get into. Like, she clearly is, like, extremely yeah. intelligent and capable, whereas Tegan is, she's what? She's like, she's, like, a flight attendant, right? She's a flight attendant, yeah. she's right. She knows, like, she's, she's, I mean... She knows what you'd expect a flight attendant yeah. to know. Right. Like, no shade to being a flight attendant or anything like that, but she doesn't right, but have any of like, these particular skills. She's not She's not an alien super genius who, who knows super right. science. <laughs> right. 
So and also, yeah, I mean, and she also, doesn't really come off as stupid exactly. I, she's sort of snarky and she's got a good acerbic wit and she and the doctor are sort of butt heads a bit. And she and Adric get into sparring matches too, like verbally, mm-hmm. because because like because I feel like Adric kind of has a has an inferiority complex because he's around the doctor and Nissa all the time. Right. <laughs> and so he takes it out on Tegan because I'm smarter than you, at least. Right. So she's also able to tell, uh, this actually happened in another serial, that he's able to tell based on her synthetic garments that she must be from another time. To which she does have the great response, like, hey, you're gonna have to take that up with my tailor. Yeah. <laughs> It is a it, it's a good zinger. She's she's clever. She's not yeah. like she's not like science genius, but she's clever. Right. I mean, she just she certainly just doesn't have that kind of training, and there's no particular reason that in her normal life she would need to. But yeah, yeah I mean, she's not dumb or anything. Well, of the four of them, Nissa is probably the one with the most people skills, but Tegan's a close second. Right. The the doctor they, and Adric yeah. suck with people. Oh yeah, no the the doctor is not is never good with people. Is what I have learned. Yep. They realize that much of the village is being controlled by these alien bracelets and are continuing to try and figure out what's going on. I think it might be at this point that the doctor is raising the possibility that the perhaps best thing for him to do is to basically kind of perhaps ideally talk to the aliens and volunteer his services to help them get home, which yeah, he assumes is what they would want to do. Yeah, he figures that like, okay, these people have crashed here. Their ship has oh. crashed, so they're probably desperate and that might mean that they would do bad things so if i can help them get home then they won't do bad things and it turns out that no they're going to do bad things anyway but right but well it, and also that they have was, a reason to not necessarily want to go home which true, we'll get into true it's a it's a nice impulse to have at least at first mm-hmm. yeah so the doctor decides to go and uh, find the miller because he's seen the miller coming and going at will from the manor and goes after him to look for more information Adric and Tegan, meanwhile, are attempting to escape. The doctor does find more caged rats, but otherwise doesn't get a lot out of the miller. And instead, he and Mace get captured by the villagers and accused of being plague carriers. And the episode ends as they're about to be executed, within the, to which the doctor responds, not again. Yeah, and like, I realized that he that he uh, was about to get beheaded in one episode of the last serial we yes. watched. But actually, this is a reference to, uh, they also used that as a cliffhanger in an episode of a, of a Four to Doomsday, which is just two serials mm-hmm. prior. So that was actually yeah. an ad lib by Peter Davison, because he's like, we just did this. We just did this cliffhanger. I'm just going to call right. attention to it. <laughs> I mean, they really do almost always end the episodes mid-serial on these big cliffhangers. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, and there's probably only so many that you can do, right? I mean, most of them are somebody being put in some dangerous situation, so. Yeah, they're about to be beheaded, or they've been locked in a room, right. or they're literally hanging off a cliff. I remember one particular instance in a later <laughs> serial where the where the doctor has, has managed to hold on to the end of end of a cliff with the hook of his umbrella, and he's just sort of dangling there, and that's where the episode ends. <laughs> The cliffhanger, yes, in the very literal sense. Yes. <laughs> so they get rescued, more or less, by actually the mind-controlled village headman, because I guess he's been instructed to bring them alive to the Terraleptals. So he shows up and says that that's what he's supposed to do, and that therefore they're wanted alive, and so they get locked up and not beheaded, which yeah. is and, an improvement, I guess. Yeah, the Terraleptal has found out about the TARDIS from, from Tegan and Adric, and right. so, and they also told him only the doctor knows how to fly it because mm-hmm. 
because it's true. He's the only one who knows how to fly it. There was actually Nothing a moment... he knows how to do so very well, but... True, but there was a... The results are even worse when someone else takes the controls. There's actually <laughs> there's actually a moment in an earlier serial where Tegan flies the thing and it goes poorly. Um, <laughs> she ends up like crashing it on its side and such. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now the the Terraleptal wants to find the doctor so the doctor can right. tell him where the TARDIS is and how to find the, and how to fly it. Right. Meanwhile, Tegan gets put under mind control, although Adric does escape, and he returns to the TARDIS, and Nyssa is there. She's, like, working on this machine thing that we'll find out more about later. It's supposed to be, like, a sonic generator that if they that if they can hit the right frequency, it'll, it'll shake the android apart. Right. The, the trouble is, it's large and bulky and not especially transportable so they have to come up with a solution for that and so they're waiting for the doctor right. to come up with an idea for that right so and they're waiting for the doctor and also of course adric wants to go uh, back for tegan but uh, nissa says like well we can't like basically we should like let's not split the party essentially which is a smart move it's like it's, it's like if if the doctor and tegan get back then we'll have to go looking for you <laughs> Right. They're waiting now in the, for now, in the TARDIS. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Mace attempt an escape, and they do manage to get the bracelets off a couple of the villagers. And when the bracelets come off, they collapse, but they do then relatively quickly recover. They basically yeah. fall asleep. They don't take the bracelets off, they pull the power pack out of the bracelets. Oh, right. Okay. So when they do that and therefore kind of end the mind control link, it's interesting because the villagers then have these, uh, this memory, they do have the memory of having been mind controlled. So they're aware of that and they have these kind of visions or vague memories of the Terraleptals, right? So they kind of remember that there are these like weird, creepy lizards and that something was wrong and which, you know, which they describe as being possessed. And of course, based on that are like, oh, the, uh, these guys are not only plague carriers, but also warlocks. Yeah. Which doesn't really make a great deal of sense because you would think that if they were the ones mind controlling them, they would have said like, set us free as opposed to lock us in this room. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. Oh, well, the lizards are trying to figure out the TARDIS and the villagers end up nearly like burning them alive, which also is bizarre because they're like setting fire to a barn that they're like sort of in another part of, which seems excruciatingly dumb. I thought they were going to burn them outside. I thought it, it looked like they were moving to like build a, a stake outside. Oh, is that what they're doing? Okay. I thought they were like trying to burn the whole building down. And I was like, what? You're uh, in that. Oh, no, yeah. No, okay. That... Okay. They are getting ready to burn them. And uh, then the android arrives and freaks him out because, of course, he looks like, you know, the Grim Reaper. Because he's even, like, carrying a scythe at this point. So, you oh, know, yeah. he's no. really got his look well, down. He grabs the scythe from the guy who was going to behead them at the end uh, of episode right. two. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, no, this is, this is a, good, a good look. You've really got it figured out. Mm -hmm. They all freak out, and the android grabs them and takes them back to the Terraleptals. Yes. This is when the doctor does offer to help, so he's, he's trying to be helpful. But it turns out that returning to the home planet is not totally what they want to do. One of them points to this kind of scarring that he has, which the doctor actually knows, it turns out, is basically like a some kind of like scarring or branding that you get if you are... Like if you're a convict, basically. If, yeah, if you're a prisoner on that is sentenced to this specific 
prison colony world. Right. And they're like, and by the way, like we're fugitives. And like, that means we're subject to life imprisonment. And that we'll have to go back to that if we go back to our home planet. And the doctor's like, hmm, mm-hmm, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Missed that one. Yeah, so he's so so then he offers to set them up on some uninhabited planet and he's like with your, right. your with your technical knowledge like you won't be you won't be forced to live like primitives for long and but they're not having it. They want this planet and they want to kill off all the humans who are infesting this planet. Yes. So. That's a that's a great idea, sure. <laughs> it's much easier to just arrive on a planet which I don't know already has some buildings, I guess at least, and then yeah. just commit genocide. That's clearly the easiest way to do things. Uh-huh. So yeah, uh-huh. so that is their plan. So Adric does end up leaving and going after the doctor, despite Nissa telling him that that's a dumb idea. And he is promptly captured by, I don't know, some people. So I can't, I've, I've lost track of like who's the villagers and who's the highway and who's like another highway man and who's who exactly, but I somebody think, captures him. I think it's it's the poachers that the doctors yes, are controlling. That's right. Yeah, so he gets captured by some of the poachers. The doctor, meanwhile, attempts an escape. He's he's got some sort of little tool that he's using to try uh, and. That's the sonic screwdriver, which is which is kind of his iconic go-to. Do pretty much anything, but especially open locks tool. Mm. Fun fact: in the eighties, like showrunner John Nathan Turner, who was like the uh, head producer on Doctor Who at the mm-hmm. time, thought. The sonic screwdriver is too much of like a, a do anything, get out of jail free card for like uh-huh. anything. So he has it destroyed in this serial, and this is the yeah. last time it is seen until the 1996 Aww. movie when they bring it back. <laughs> sad. It is destroyed, which he is very sad about, which makes sense since it's been such a uh, trusty item. He does actually also make a like note at some point, I guess it would be perhaps foreshadowing that Sudi's not even going to have the trusty uh, sonic screwdriver that he comments like, I really should get like a survival kit together at some point. Well, because he's like rummaging in his pockets for like things he can use to pick the lock. He finds a safety pin. Right. <laughs> not having a ton of luck and other that he's kind of working at the uh, his manacles with the sonic screwdriver but then the teraleptals come in and bait, like and you know the, they destroy the screwdriver and caption yep. cash in so he's, and he's like i feel like i've lost an old friend so pour one out for the screwdriver yeah pour a <laughs> screwdriver out <laughs> right <laughs> Also at this point, Tegan and Mace have both been put under mind control. So Tegan was before, but now Mace is as well. And Tegan, by the way, is kind of sad because she actually was referencing at the very beginning the fact that she, it sounded like, was like put under mind control during the last serial. Yes. Yeah. She got, she got possessed by this snake demon thing. Yeah. It's a little complicated, but yeah, it does suck. Yeah, so like two serials in a row where I guess where she gets mind controlled, like, oof. It's interesting to note that like even in the 80s, like this is kind of treated as, you know, a traumatic experience that like affects her later character development too. Yeah, which makes sense. And which, yeah, that's actually nice and somewhat surprising that they're actually like sensitive to that. Yeah, and that there's actually continuity for that. Right. So I felt very bad for Tegan at this point, uh, being put under mind control again. The Teraleptals say, like, they're going to put him to death. But of course, typically, as bad guys, before they put him to death, they have to explain their dastardly plan in full. <laughs> yep. 
which is that they have genetically engineered a variant on the plague, which is being carried by our caged rat friends. This is a, I guess, much more virulent version, version, which is going to kill off, like, literally everybody, as opposed to just a lot of people. Yep. The doctor gets a gets a good... Well, actually, no. The Terraleptil gets a good line in here. He says, just as these primitives kill lesser species to protect themselves, so I kill them. And then the doctor's like, that's not... That's hardly an argument. And the Terraleptil turns around and yells, it's not supposed to be an argument. It's a statement. Which Great is a change. pretty good, like, I'm not interested in your logic. I want to be evil. Right. Yeah. He's like, I, I don't care. I'm just like, this is what I'm doing. Like, I'm not... Like, I, I really don't give a shit. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So the plan is that uh, they're going to kill him now. But of course, basically, like, to do that, they essentially start out by just, like, they leave him in a room with Mace and Tegan and say, like, oh, y'all, you know, now that you're under mind control, you know, kill him if he moves. The episode ends with Tegan, like, fiddling with a lock on a rat cage uh, who's going to then be let out and give all of them the plague yeah and the doctors and the doctors telling her to fight the mind control and the doctor does manage to overpower mace and tegan and uh, i guess also kind of like knock the power packs out of their bracelets right yep the android meanwhile goes off in search of the tardis they all manage to escape so i guess he gives the safety pin right to mace who using yeah. his highwayman skills uh, starts working on picking the lock yeah, he 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 gets him out of the manacles and then starts working on the door lock. There's a there's a delightful line. Uh, the doctor asks Tegan, "How are you feeling?" And Tegan's like, "Groggy, tired, and bad tempered." And the doctor's like, "Oh, back to normal then." And I'm like, "I feel you, Tegan. I feel you." <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> that that sounds about right. That's how I mostly feel in 2021. Yeah. They have a pistol and they kind of have this whole argument to whether they should instead like shoot through the lock. I actually was, okay, so the doctor shoots at a spot that's just like a little above the lock and then the door does open. I don't know enough about how door locks work in the 17th century or otherwise to know if the doctor is correct that he was in fact successful or if Mace is correct that he in fact picked the lock. Yeah, and I don't know either, honestly. Mace didn't want him to shoot the lock because he's like, they'll, they'll hear you. But the doctor, like, right. reasons that, like, if they left you here to guard me, that means they're gone. Right. So it seems like a good plan. Yeah, because they're also like, oh, well, I guess you're going to have to die. But then their idea is like, okay, so we're just going to take the fuck off and leave you here in this cell. I mean, it's very like the James Bond, like, we're not going to just chop your head off, right? We are yeah. going to, like, leave you under these very particular circumstances mm -hmm. and, uh, like, I don't know, see what happens. Maybe you'll die. Like, we're not going to put that much work into it. We're not going to just shoot you. That sounds Obviously like Obviously not. Despite the fact that, like, they've done that with, like, multiple people already. So they've kind of taken off. Uh, I also do want to note that at some point in this episode, we do see one of the Terra Leptals who's actually put on some, like, 17th century, like, hat and a cape. And he's... it is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he's, like, wearing the cloak with the hood, but, like, to, like, conceal his appearance. But he's still got, like, the lizard snout that's very visibly poking out from under the yes. hood. Yes, like, it's not actually a successful disguise oh, at yeah. all because he still looks in every way like a giant lizard <laughs> yeah you you get the feeling that like i mean the only person who actually sees him is the miller who doesn't notice who, who doesn't notice anything's amiss because he's being mind controlled right 
so for a lot of people, it doesn't matter that they have any kind of disguise at all, right? Because they're under mind control. And for people who aren't under mind control, it's not actually a functional disguise in any way. Yeah. It's just this very weird, like my theory is that it's not actually intended to be a disguise. He just really likes the look. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's September in England. It It's a little chilly. <laughs> yeah like fashionable functional like maybe maybe we should all be wearing cloaks i don't know sure why not this hat seems fun yep (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so i like to think that he's just like the fashionable (laughs) pteroleptal they're kind of left there so they uh they get out of the room and they're kind of looking around the control room they are surprised at how advanced or the doctor is surprised the other people you know don't really know anything but the doctor is surprised to see how advanced their technology is he does manage to disable their control panel which means that the villagers bracelets are no longer controlling them meanwhile like tegan and mace are like trying to like read some stuff and it basically is all like things that look like mathematical formulas and they're like we can't read any of this and the doctor's like yeah it's fine whatever um <laughs> i think what they're trying to do is is find the address of of the building that they're headed to but all they're finding are like science notes yeah in a language they don't understand even if they did understand the science right they don't even have the people on it who are the people who might understand the math they have the like 20th century flight attendant and the 17th century robber yeah because the actual mathematical genius and science princess are aboard the TARDIS. They're aboard the TARDIS, and the android then reaches the TARDIS. Nissa does manage to lure him into the room where she has the machine, because as discussed before, the machine is not very portable. But it does, however, despite that drawback, uh, seems to be perfectly functional, and it works and uh, very slowly but surely breaks the android apart. Yep. It's like a sonic thing that like vibrates it to pieces. Right. Yeah. And she's a little sad about it, which is kind of sweet that she's yeah. like, it wasn't a bad machine. Yeah. Nissa is a pacifist at heart. Yeah. No, I thought that, as I thought, I thought that was very cute that she was like, it's not its fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, the doctor actually asks, what is the nearest city to which I'm watching? And I'm like, London, obviously. <laughs> You're like, at Heathrow, what do you think is the nearest city? Yeah, I don't know what what or if he's thinking at this point. Right. They do then scan a map of London, uh, searching for the Terraleptals, and manage to find basically someplace where... Or, oh, sorry. So uh, the tar- they do get uh, they get back to the TARDIS, which is... Actually, um, the TARDIS gets that, to yeah. them because... because yes. So the Doctor and Tegan and Mace are like in the house, and they are trying to find... All the doors and windows are locked. But then Adric and Nyssa, having dealt with the android, figure out how to pilot the TARDIS into the house. And they're having a little trouble landing. It's sort of flickering in and out of existence. And Adric's like, I don't understand what's, what's not working. And Nyssa's like, well, try and think what the doctor would do. And, and Adric's like, got it. And he like punches the console. And it, <laughs> and it works. It lands. <laughs> I mean, you, you do what you do, right? Yep. So yes, that does get it uh, into the building. And so yeah, so then they all get back into the TARDIS and are now scanning a map of London to basically look for any anomaly, essentially, and do find a place where there is some sort of like electrical emission that is clearly not 17th century. 
Yeah. And Tegan also has a kind of snarky, like, why didn't you say that's what you were looking for? And the doctor's like, I wasn't looking for that until I found it. I think he's just scanning for anything out of place. Yeah, so he's like, yeah, I'll see if anything looks weird. So, and, and sure enough, something did. At this point, they actually do manage to get the TARDIS, like, to London, to the exact correct place and time, astonishingly easily. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think it might be easier that they're that they're not trying to travel in time as well as space. Right. Maybe doing like very short, both temporal and geographical distances uh, makes it easier. That like if you essentially use the TARDIS as like a car, then yeah. uh, it's not too bad. <laughs> they get to London. They uh, arrive at this bakery and go inside to see what uh, to kind of look for the Terraleptals. They get in and they have one of the Terraleptals is like standing there facing them. And the other two are like hiding behind the door that they just came in from. And the first one is just standing there and he's like, wow, I'm so impressed. Y'all are so smart. I clearly underestimated you. While we as the audience are watching this and we're like, oh my God, there are two literally (laughs) right behind you that you're not noticing. Yeah. Also, the bakery's got like this weird, just red lighting. Right. Yeah. It looks like the red alert lighting on Star Trek, but more red Mm. it's also like covered in hay yeah which seems like not the best idea it doesn't especially considering uh, especially considering what happens shortly yep yep as we will shortly get into foreshadowing so they have their uh fight with the terraleptals in the process of this fight the doctor drops something he looks like he's got like a little like firecracker or something yeah well i mean it's it's supposed to be like dark in there so he's like lit himself a torch so he can actually right. see during the fighting like it gets knocked out of his hand and into mm-hmm. a convenient pile of straw um right what if you're convenient piles of hay that you have just sitting around yeah so he has to get knocked in, it gets knocked into the pile of hay at some point over the course of this fight like somebody basically also actually like throws a gun into the like the fire that's already burning oh yeah and it's one it's it's and it's not like one of mace's like 17th century like period appropriate guns it's one of it's one of the terraleptal laser guns yes and mace is actually i think able to take down more than one of the terraleptals with his actual guns yeah because he had the foresight to uh raid the gun cabinet of the house mm-hmm. that and like load them all before coming yeah so, it's like, so good, he doesn't good have job, to, dude. he doesn't have to waste time on like reloading because he's yeah. carrying multiple loaded guns yeah good good job good good setup yeah i really like that mace isn't stupid yeah he's he's right? smart he's just also at times clearly out of his depth because you know aliens <laughs> Yeah, that, like, he's, you know, he obviously doesn't have, like, the knowledge, necessarily, that some of the other people involved have. Like, he walks into the TARDIS when they, when Adric and Nyssa come to pick them up, and he's, like, looking around at, like, the bigger on the inside, and he's like, this isn't possible. <laughs> right, yeah, which is, honestly, probably, like, what, you know, most, most of us would say if we ended up in a spaceship, like. Yeah, and, and, and Adric just, like, gives him a friendly pat on the on the shoulder, and he's like... That's what I thought at first, too. You get used to it. <laughs> right, right. 
But yeah, so as I said, I, I like that he's he's not, you know, he doesn't have the basis of knowledge that other people have, but like, he's not dumb. And he's like, oh, like, this is weird. This is interesting. I don't understand how this works. But like, he's very curious about things and uh, is, you know, aware that like something is odd. Like early on, he's kind of skeptical because he's like, I am a man of the theater. I know how a parlor trick works. <laughs> right. Yes. I really like that he thinks that a lot of the things are just like basically theater tricks, which is fun. Yeah. They've started this fire. The Terraleptals get like partly brought down, you know, over the course of the fight, but they also basically like leave them to like burn to death. And you have at some point, one of them, I think the closed captioning says it's whimpering and literally like its face is melting. Oh yeah. Like its skin is like bubbling and it's honestly kind of horrifying. It is. It's really horrifying. Yeah. It's well. (laughs) That's a bad way to go. It really is. They they die, I guess. They also throw the plague rat cages into the fire and then they just take off. They actually, yeah, I think they do sort of invite Mace uh, to go with them, but he like says he's going to stay and the doctor yeah, gives like, him like you, a little uh, toy. Your way of life is a little fast paced for me. I will stay and right? help fight the fire. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor gives him a little toy and somebody asks him like, aren't the archaeologists are going like, to ask about that? And he's like, shh. <laughs> yeah, he gives he gives them the little circuit board from the control panel as like a keepsake. Right, he's got that. So that'll be fun. As they get back on the TARDIS, his companions wonder if they should have stayed to help fight the fire. To which the doctor responds that he has a sneaking suspicion that this particular fire should be allowed to run its course. That initially just seems rather cryptic, but then we do end with a close up of the Pudding Lane sign, indicating, of course, that this is the bakery at which the Great Fire of London began. Yep. Which I assume is, uh, for an English audience in particular, like a very, yeah. like, is like very obvious as a cue. I mean, it's a probably not the most obscure historical reference they've ever gone with. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, I would bet that for most who went to school in England, that would be extremely obvious. I would bet it's maybe not quite as obvious for Americans. Right. But, but this is this is a British show that was originally exactly. shown in Britain. Exactly. So yeah, so for the initial intended audience, I think it would have been uh, a pretty obvious historical cue. Doctor Who has always been like, oh, it's it's always been a very British show. And it's, there are always those references that like, we as Americans probably wouldn't get right off if we didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I are in a better position than most because we are historians, but... Right. You know, it's something that wouldn't necessarily be as apparent to Americans, but it's at least at least I think the way it's staged is it's clear that it's supposed to be some sort of cue. I guess in the 1980s, you couldn't Google it, but, you know, you can look it up, I guess. Yeah. Now it would be very easy to just Google. Like Google um, Pudding Lane. Right, and I'm sure that's the first thing. I haven't, I haven't checked, but I'm sure that's actually basically the first thing that comes up if you Google Pudding Lane. I'm going to try it. <laughs> well, the first thing that comes up is the Wikipedia page for Pudding Lane. Right. But then, the, but then the next thing is people also ask, did the Great Fire of London kill off the plague? People also ask, what happened to Pudding Lane? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the other, all the other questions are just Great Fire of London related, so... Yeah, there we go. Back then, now can get into our discussion of the Vera at Falso. Uh, what did they get right and what did they get wrong? I will make the quick note that uh, this is uh, 
we are taking and in including this a slightly expansive vision of uh, my period. The 17th century is, uh, is a bit beyond what I would normally consider my area of primary expertise. And that does mean that there are very possibly little like material culture things that didn't quite jump out at me. I personally, I mean, I, I figured this one would be safe to include because you review the Three Musketeers adaptations sometimes. Oh, yeah. So like, I figure this this serial in particular is fair game. It's close enough, yeah. Yeah. And I'm happy to chat about the Great Fire of London. Yeah. I wanted to start by talking about comets as omens, because of course we do have our people at the outset, and I think this comes up with uh, Richard Mace as well, that there is some uh, question brought up of uh, comets as being potentially ill omens. Indeed, there are a lot of astrological readings of comets, Thank you, producer Carmen is also in the room. <laughs> there are interpretations of comets that tend to emphasize the idea of they're being linked with some kind of death and political turmoil and having some kind of function as omens. And this is actually an idea that goes back to Pliny the Elder in the first century CE, who had talked about comets in this regard. It is, however, worth noting that these astrological interpretations of comets did coexist with uh, more what we might traditionally refer to as scientific explanations of comets. Indeed, there's something of a ongoing debate at this period about the comets and whether they're outside or, or inside the Earth's atmosphere and exactly what they are. Aristotle talked about comets as being some kind of a, like natural phenomenon, as opposed to just something that was this kind of, you know, omen. But he thought that they were basically like connected, like that they were with something that was always like within the Earth's atmosphere, that they were very much a kind of terrestrial phenomenon, fundamentally. Uh, well, Aristotle was wrong about everything, so it doesn't surprise me that he yeah. was wrong about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know... <laughs> At this point, it's on brand. Yeah, yeah, you know, smart guy, but he didn't necessarily figure out everything. Yeah, so Aristotle didn't quite get that. There was a moment in the first episode where Mace is telling them about the comet, as he calls it. And the doctor's like, there's not supposed to be a comet this this uh, year. Are you sure it wasn't a meteor? And, and, and Mace is like, I don't know what the difference is. Right, yeah, which, which I think would fair. be right. A meteor would technically be a decent description of something entering atmosphere and burning up like the pterolepidal ship yeah, yeah. So that's the more proper term and, and they just don't have the vocabulary right. to explain it and it's interesting also because of course while there wasn't a comet in this year there actually was i believe one just a couple years before which then retroactively was treated as being an omen of the plague which we'll talk about in a few minutes uh -huh. So back in 1664, so a couple of years before this. There were, however, already in the 16th century, Tycho Brahe and Michael Maslin did make the argument that comets existed outside the Earth's atmosphere, which I believe is correct, yes? Yep, yep. That's, if anything, that's an understatement. I do not know anything about science, but yes, but I believe that one is correct. But we do have, of course, a variety of scientific opinions, including Galileo's, which is that comets didn't exist and were an optical illusion. <laughs> uh, not not quite not quite but you know sorry Galileo can't win them all we have I'd say something of a mixed bag in our character Richard Mace he describes himself as both a highwayman and a thespian 
it's a good time to be a highwayman. That one, I'm definitely like, yeah, no, this is this is the right time for you to be running around as a highwayman. The term itself apparently first appears in 1617, which I just learned today doing some research on highwaymen. And so now every time they use the term earlier, I can say that it's wrong. And I'm very <laughs> excited about that piece of knowledge. Nice. Because yeah, it would not actually have occurred to me previously necessarily to look this up. But as I said, now every time somebody refers to highwaymen in the 16th century, I can be like, mm. I don't know. I'm not about that one. And the period from about 1660 to 1714 is apparently considered like the classical era of the highwaymen. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Basically because they don't have an especially effective police force outside the cities. And so once you get on the road, it's kind of like, well, best of luck. Yeah. That seems like, you know, it's a good good time to be a highwayman. So however, there is this bit that he also claims that he is involved in the theater. That basically like he switched to being a highwayman or switched back to being a highwayman because the theaters are closed during the plague. And that part is correct. But what I'm not quite sure about is uh, the implication that theater actors at this point are like basically on like the boundaries of being criminals. Because my understanding is that this is actually the period where being in the theater is kind of moving toward respectability. The theaters are closed under Cromwell and then get reopened with the restoration under Charles II. He, at this point, like grants basically patents to a few playwrights, which means that they kind of have like a monopoly over theater production in London, at least. I was interpreting it as because the theater is closed, Mace needs a different kind of income that's why he turned to robbing people and so that was my my sense as well but i do think that like the sense that this would be like a natural jump to him as opposed to like i don't know trying to see if somebody will like hire him to like carry heavy things or something i don't know yeah Um, that is that is a little i don't know it seems it seems like a thing that that made sense the time. So it seems to me like it's maybe like coming from a slightly earlier period in the history of theater when the theater was more sort of borderline and disreputable. That track. And that it's maybe not quite as accurate in this period in the 1660s when theater is sort of moving more toward respectability. Though I could be wrong about that. If anybody specializes in the 17th century and wants to correct me, please feel free to do so. But I do have to wonder if, as I said, it quite makes sense at this point, especially because I said this is where theater is getting to be more of uh, something that is kind of like has this sort of state imprimatur and is more of a kind of big profitable business and also is considered to be a bit more socially acceptable for women to be involved in theater. I have nothing to add. I don't don't know either. (laughs) So I don't actually know for sure, but uh, my... My feeling is, as I said, that uh, it's maybe a little bit off for uh, for this to still be a point where, as I said, the kind of boundaries between the theatrical profession and the criminal underworld are quite so thin as uh, they are implied to be here. Right. That makes sense. Hi, Carmen. Carmen has an opinion. I don't know what it is, but she certainly has one. Something actually that I do think it does do mostly fairly well is its depiction of the big plague outbreak. One of the kind of big central elements throughout the serial is this idea that there is a kind of ongoing outbreak of plague. This is known as the Great Plague of London from 1665 to 1666 and was the last of the major bubonic plague outbreaks in England, although not quite the last in the world. 
I do think since I think I hinted about this or talked about this briefly in the podcast previously, but I always actually like when this gets depicted in the late medieval, early modern period, because while people often just kind of say like, oh, the Black Death, that was like a thing that happened from 1347 to 1351 or, you know, whatever precise dates you use, which depend on your geographical area that you're talking about. Yeah. It never just like disappeared. Like we never just like completely stopped having the plague, or at least we didn't for like several hundred years. And in fact, periodic outbreaks of plague across Europe and the Middle East occurred until about 1750. So none of these outbreaks are quite as deadly as the very first one, which killed potentially up to about 60% of the population in some areas. But it still was pretty deadly on the whole. So the Great Plague of London killed probably between like one-sixth and one-quarter of the city's inhabitants, depending on your estimates, right? Yeah. A lot of people. A lot of people, yeah. Businesses were closed, including the theaters. Quarantine is imposed on ships. So it's also not surprising that when you have these like weird people who probably present as foreigners and you don't know where they came from, that Uh, the idea that they're... Yeah, they're seen as plague carriers makes a lot of sense. It doesn't get much more foreign than than a, than a delegation from Gallifrey, Alzarius, Trocken, and 1981. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of them, I'm sure, you know, this doesn't really show up necessarily because, like, they're all basically, like, British actors. Yeah. But if you took, like, you know, reality, like, I don't know, it kind of makes sense, like, the way they talk, when they, you know, their vocabulary would seem weird. Like, they clearly dress, like, not in the way that would make, you know, that made sense yeah. to anybody. Three of them are aliens, and even Tegan is Australian, so... Right. (laughs) So it definitely makes sense that, yeah, you've got these weird foreigners, and you don't know where they came from. The fact that they are immediately under suspicion as plague carriers actually does make a lot of sense. Yeah. The cleansing fires at the beginning, was was that a common thing? The lighting sulfur in fires to try and drive away the bad plague air yeah i believe so so in general that seems to have been like the main way to get rid of a plague that basically yeah, this idea of there being like corrupted air and you have to do something to get rid of the corrupted air the thing however that was most common was not necessarily the fires but like individual protections so in here this is actually not quite right we see them wearing these cloth masks which perhaps look very familiar to us today yeah it almost looks like some of them are like have like pulled their shirts up over their nose right or they're wearing like bandanas almost this seems to have been basically to some extent something that my guess is that they're really kind of taking that in its particulars perhaps more from the 1918 influenza pandemic and my sense is that in terms of what people actually would have been doing in the 17th century it mostly would have involved uh, that they would have been like carrying around handkerchiefs and just kind of briefly putting them up over their nose or even carrying around because again, the problem is like this idea of corrupted air. And so the way to get around it is that you have to like not smell the air. You would just carry around a little sachet or bouquet of flowers that you would just be smelling as you walked. All right. Sure. Would suck to have a pollen allergy, but... (laughs) Right, yeah. If you got if you got a pollen allergy during uh, during this time, you're really, I guess, not, I mean, not that it was helping either. So you know, no, your that's true. thing is your sort of shit out of luck. Regardless, they actually would have been doing something to kind of try and keep out the air. But yeah, but in particular, this use of cloth masks is not quite right. Are these uh, kind of bandanas around their faces? Is not quite right. I do, however, think it's interesting that they've got this comment made that. 
the plague is actually even worse outside the city and this kind of these uh, kind of suburbs essentially than it is in London. Because at first I was like, hmm, I mean, that doesn't necessarily totally make sense. But on the other hand, maybe it's basically because like the terraleptals are like fucking around. And I was like, okay, it makes sense the counterfactual. But then I did a little bit more digging and it actually makes sense for like September 1666, because as I'll get into in a minute, the plague is essentially like in decline or sort of, you know, burning itself out at this point. And we're at the point actually where there are more plague cases in the suburbs than in the city. Interesting. Yeah, in this particular run of the epidemic. Because that's actually why people now, or most scholars now, are arguing that the Great Fire of London did not, in fact, basically stop the plague. All right. Although in, although in this version, it did, it did destroy the new strain that the Terraleptals made. So right. at right. least there's that. They, they, make right. a point, they make a point of, uh, of tossing all their stash of, I'm not sure if it's a bacterium or a virus, but they've got like test tubes and what all yeah and so before that before they leave they make a point of tossing them all in the burning bakery so that they can be destroyed it does in this version yeah it destroys the uh the fancy new version of the plague yeah and i think actually also at the period in which this serial was made i believe the going assumption was still in fact that the fire had actually contributed to basically like wiping out the plague and like i can see where that that's what I was assuming up until just now, so... Right, and I'd certainly I can... heard that before, but yeah, but apparently, based on what I've been coming across, that's no longer the prevalent theory. Hmm, I learned something today. Which then actually gets into, I to talk a little bit more about the Great Fire of London for the Historia at Veritas segment. We have this bit with the Great Fire. It did indeed, or at least it certainly is the kind of traditional assumption is that it begins in the, and that's coming out of the records from the time, that it begins with a fire in this bakery on Pudding Lane. And it is an extremely destructive fire. So it destroyed 13,200 homes, Oof. which actually was potentially the homes of like the majority of the population, essentially which is awful. Yeah. Also, yeah, a number of administrative buildings, 87 parish churches, and St. Paul's Cathedral. It's time to pour one out for Old St. Paul's Cathedral, which was a Gothic church uh, completed in the 14th century. And so now we have this, like, 17th century. I guess it's fine, but the old version seems nicer. Yeah. I mean, we have a couple paintings of it, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and they've done like some digital reconstructions, which are cool. And yeah, it seems like it was like a really nice Gothic cathedral. And now we don't have that. And also in general, this fire is why London has a lot less surviving medieval architecture than many European cities. Like say Paris or Barcelona. Barcelona. There we go. That's Barcelona. Prague, Lynn. Italy is, yeah, Italy is a kind of weird beca uh, because like it's because of how well it's doing economically in the 15th, 16th century. They like knock a yeah. bunch of the medieval shit down and build Renaissance and Baroque shit. But True. <laughs> Older Italian towns, smaller ones still have right. good medieval architecture. Like what's the one that there was Vienna one. has. There was, there was one that St. Assisi, St. Francis of oh, Assisi. Yeah. 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 My sister went to that one place that that one saint is from. Who was it? Francis of Assisi. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Assisi, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Assisi is great. Siena is nice. 
Yeah. So, you know, a lot of these uh, kind of major European cities, uh, you know, have a very rich medieval architecture that's still standing, but London not so much. And that's mostly because of this fire. This is also the origin of my weird conspiracy theory that Christopher Wren started the Great Fire of London because Uh. he got so much work out of it because like, if you get like a tour of the churches of London, it's like, yeah, and this is built by Christopher Wren after the Great Fire of London. And this was also built by Christopher Wren after the Great Fire of London. And he's a very good architect, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's actually interesting because I mean, so he obviously has very much his own style, which is not my favorite style, but it's clearly a very like good example of the sort of thing that it is. Yeah. But it's actually interesting that there is one church, I don't remember what it's called because I did not look this up and I'm completely just drawing on my memory from a tour I went on like 15 years ago. But there is actually one church that basically they just said, yeah, we liked it the way it was. We want you to build it like that. And so there is actually this one church that like looks like a little Gothic par- a little Gothic parish church in London. But it's not mm-hmm. actually a Gothic parish church. It's just a like near exact replica built by Christopher Wren. I love it. It's yeah. great. It's like, like, oh, we, it's, that's like nice. it's like don't don't make us anything new and fancy. We we liked the old one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so like he clearly, you know, he has his style, but he also is clearly, you know, a very talented architect who is also capable of doing other sorts of things if called upon to do so and doing them quite well, I think. Uh, but yeah, so he got a lot of work out of the Great Fire of London. There was a couple of reasons that I wanted to mention that the fire was uh, so intense. One is that London has essentially ideal conditions for the spread of a fire during this period, which is basically that there's a lot of really poorly built wooden houses that are much too close together, including that like they're building too many stories and they're kind of hanging out into the middle of the street. And so that like the houses are basically almost touching each other. Yeah, this is the reason we have fire codes these days. Yeah, Um, and then they kind of didn't. So uh, there's a lot of like very obvious because like, it is yes, that you have these like houses that are being built too tall and they're hanging out and they're over these super narrow streets. The houses across the street from each other are basically touching. Yeah, so so the fire can easily jump from one to the other. Exactly. The other problem is that the main method of fighting fires is basically like controlled demolition. of buildings that might be thought to be uh, at risk for like the fire then spreading, right? That you just like knock down a few of these houses so then the fire doesn't have anything to jump to. That makes sense. Yeah, no, so it doesn't not make sense. The problem is that they just didn't do it because (laughs) the mayor of London, a man named Thomas Bloodworth, apparently just like, right, it is a great name, but apparently this dude just sucked. Like, apparently he was basically this, like, very much, like, political appointment and did not know what the fuck he was doing. And then when faced with an actual emergency, he, like, kept dithering and didn't know what to do. At some point, he apparently just straight up ditched, said, I think it's going to be fine, and went to bed. (laughs) Amazing. Um, There's some interesting politics, of course, because London's independence from the king is actually a really big deal. And despite that, Charles II, at some point, seeing what's going on and that Bloodworth is doing nothing, at some point, he just gave the orders himself at counter to the kind of traditional, like, who should actually have the authority to do this? Because he was like, we need to actually fucking do something about this fire. Yeah. And Charles II is the one who, like, very voluntarily ceded a lot of traditional royal power in his right. own, like, because that was the conditions for the restoration Mm -hmm. like 
It's like, we'll let the king come back, but he can't have as much power. And so he like wrote a whole big list and he's like, these are all the powers I'm willing to give up. Yeah. Like, which was a cool move. Like I am, I am yeah. willingly limiting my own power so that we can have peace and also not Cromwell. <laughs> right. And it's interesting because here there's certainly no reason to think that he was doing this in an effort to usurp in a more kind of long-term or dramatic way, the liberties of the city of London. Yeah, he really was is... just like, we need to stop this massive fire. Yeah, I, I've heard, I've heard, I'm not sure uh, how true they are, but I've heard stories about like how there were points where Charles II was like in a bucket chain. Right. Like, helping, helping throw water on the fire. And he is also, he certainly is like ordering some of these demolitions to happen, which uh, is, you know, at least is kind of helping to slow the spread to some extent. We also have the additional problem that we basically end up having essentially wind conditions, which also are ideal for the fire spread. Fun. Fun. So that's why the fire began on Sunday, September 2nd, took until Thursday to mostly burn out. But there were even like some essentially isolated fires around the city that continued until the following Sunday. So a full week after it began because it rained. Wow. Yeah, so you essentially had like a week of the city being like in the midst of this major crisis. It's a pretty big deal. And while there are relatively few people reported to have died from the fire directly, it essentially does create a refugee crisis. And it's very likely that there's a lot of people who are dying of starvation or exposure. There ends up being this whole thing that basically like Charles is trying to set things up so that he's like pushing other towns to like take homeless people from London. Which makes sense, but right, it's, yeah. still, it's still, like, not a great situation all around. No, exactly. And so especially for all of these people who were homeless or, like, otherwise in very precarious positions who are, like, living in these really shitty houses, which are the most likely to go up. Yeah. So, yes, you have this major refugee crisis, a lot of people probably dying of starvation or of exposure. And also some scholars have argued that we probably are undercounting the number of people even who died directly from the fire, because very possibly like the people who would have been most vulnerable, like people who were elderly or had disabilities or, you know, were very young and were maybe had a harder time escaping the fire, that they also might be people who, especially if they're coming from a kind of marginalized, impoverished population, are not necessarily, like, their deaths are not necessarily going to get reported. Makes sense. Yeah. As I said, it's a pretty dramatic crisis. While nobody at the time uh, accused actual aliens of being responsible for starting the fire <laughs> they did however manage to find some scapegoats in particular catholics of course uh, of course who else, who else could it be <laughs> of course we had pretty early a number of people claiming that like the catholics had started the fire and then there's this french watchmaker robert hubert who in fact confessed that he had started the fire under orders from the pope and is executed now, this confession, A, after he died, was demonstrably proved to be false because it turned out he didn't get to London until two days after the fire started. Yeah, that, hmm. And it was probably elicited under torture and or taking advantage of the fact that he seems to have been somebody who suffered from some kind of mental disability and, like, was not Oof. necessarily entirely capable of in today's legal system at least that he would not be considered necessarily like fully capable of making that kind of confession not a great time no 
So yeah, so he got executed. So there is a, again, built by Christopher Wren. Uh Uh, (laughs) There is a big old monument to the Great Fire of London. A couple of years after this monument was completed, they added to the monument the line in Latin, sed furor papisticus quitandiu patrawit nondum restinguitur, but popish frenzy, which wrought such horrors, is not yet quenched. So it said on the monument, the Catholics started this fire, everybody, and it sucks that there are still Catholics around because they're the worst. Wow. And this remained on the monument until 1830. Oof. When they officially, like, made Catholics, like, fully citizens. Yeah. Um, And uh, there was, like, then, like, a petition that, like, can you take the bit off the monument saying that we started the Great Fire of London? Yeah. I wonder if, if that accusation is at all related to the true accusation that Catholics tried to blow up King James I that one time. I mean, it certainly could be that, you know, they're like, oh, the Catholics, <laughs> they come to England and blow shit up because they hate us. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's not totally wrong, but in this particular situation, there's no evidence for it. Yeah. Certainly there is no evidence that the Great Fire of London in terms of its start was anything but an accident. In particular, because my sense is that this kind of fire potentially, you know, it wasn't necessarily that rare that this sort of fire might start. It was just that due to a particularly essentially dangerous combination of extremely poor management and the weather... And, you know, the kind of other overall conditions in London, it just spread much further than it necessarily even, like, needed to. That makes sense. So if it was a papal plot, it would have been, like, a real, real stretch, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Unless Bloodworth was in on it. That's getting into that's getting into yeah. Crazy now we're really getting into conspiracy theory territory, right? Yeah. No, I, I don't think Bloodworth was in on it. I think he just sucked at his job. Yeah. Like many governors in the United States today. Yeah, it's true. I'm in South Dakota, which is probably one of the worst. Yeah, Tennessee is also not great. So we can now get into the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a film, show, whatever, inspired by this one. So Elizabeth, since you said you came up for one, you uh, came up with one this time, do you want to go first? I did. This episode had uh, aliens trying to genetically engineer the plague to be worse. Since last night, I watched a bunch of YouTube history documentaries about the conquistadors. I had the idea that perhaps like an actual real life plague or pandemic an episode an episode where like aliens come to earth and accidentally bring along a disease Mm. and that sets off some plague potentially the black death although that's that may be you know a little too on the nose right but the doctor manages to like stop the aliens and drive them off but like leaves with like possibly without even realizing that they brought Mm. plague to earth yeah they might even be defeated by catching some pre-existing earth disease like i don't know tuberculosis is that what is that what war of the worlds was tuberculosis oh i don't remember or maybe it was i think it was actually it was something really common that like didn't bother humans much but martians mm-hmm. had no immunity to it so they all die huh. and i know you know depending on what time it got like they could like catch the bubonic plague but they could cause the sweating sickness ooh yeah that That'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what plot the aliens actually have, and this is a subplot that mm-hmm. just accidentally happens. Right. 
Interesting. I was inspired by the bit where, so usually in, or in the other serials that I've watched, it's often uh, you see the doctor essentially attempting to prevent history from being somehow changed or altered. And this serial is a bit different in that he in fact uh, causes something, but something that was always supposed to happen. Like that that's already like in our history books, right? That we know happened. Yeah. So inspired by that, I was trying to think of something that could be interesting, something else that could be interesting to have like the doctor cause or uh, help to set into motion or facilitate some kind of major historical event. And so I was struggling to come up with one because, of course, not all major historical events hinge so obviously on some kind of like individual particular action. But I do like the idea of uh, sending the doctor out to the Iberian Peninsula and having him end up doing something pivotal that helps to allow for the uh, Umayyad Islamic takeover of uh, the Iberian Peninsula in 711. So I think that would be fun. That would be fun. And also, I think there's something to be said for maybe the doctor occasionally hanging out with somebody who's like not white. Yeah, that's, that's, (laughs) I mean, that's like a very, that is a fair criticism to level at the BBC in this era. Like the first companion like of color is Martha Jones in 2007. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's not great, but it is what it is. But that actually does remind me of another episode that's in that's in the revival series where uh, the doctor like essentially causes a historical event that does have that like does do quite a bit of damage, but he does it mm-hmm. to like stop something worse. Uh, the episode is called "The Fires of Pompeii," in which uh, the ah. doctor actually causes Vesuvius to erupt because it's the Ooh. only way to stop these aliens that we're going to do worse things to the world as a whole mm. so it's mm. kind of he has so he has to like make sure history takes its course and essentially sacrifices P- pompeii to save the world huh interesting yeah and yeah. it's and it's an interesting moral dilemma in like how messing with history works and like yeah the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few etc yeah, so I think that could be that could be fun. Again, I'm I'm really inter- I find really interesting these kind of different questions about like how time travel works and like to what extent the doctor is like preventing change and to what extent he's causing it. Uh, I think yeah. there are kind of thorny issues there. Yeah. In general, the doctor is is personally against changing established history in, yeah. because something worse might happen. Which, you know, is fair. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, but it's then interesting that you have these kind of moments where he sort of realizes like, oh, it actually is like good that I'm, or like necessary perhaps that I'm like doing this thing, even if it's maybe not a great thing because it was always supposed to and had to happen. Right. And again, in this situation also, it's like, well, it clearly was better than the alternative. So maybe he ends up like playing some pivotal role in like some uh, battle, which otherwise there would have been like an alien takeover of the Iberian Peninsula. And in the grand scheme of things, like the Umayyad takeover of the Iberian Peninsula is like not a bad thing. It's a, you know, neutral to maybe good thing. Turned out pretty well overall. Yeah. Certainly, honestly, like, no, certainly is no worse than having the Visigoths in charge, because fuck the Visigoths, so. Yeah, and it was better than, you know, the Castilians. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, you know. Yeah. So I think that could be interesting. 
So at this point, we can get into rating the serial on a scale from one to five based on whatever completely subjective criteria <laughs> we see fit. And I'm actually going to get this one up to a 3.5. That is because so I do want to take up, you know, there's kind of little things here and there's kind of little errors here and there. I don't know, there's like little errors here and there. And I also like sometimes do still wish that like women had more to do than they often get to do at uh, yeah. this stage of Doctor Who. But overall, I think that it did a pretty decent job with the history. And as I was saying before, I really like that it has somebody from the period who is actually a well-rounded character, which I didn't feel like was necessarily the case in some of the other pre-modern serials we've watched. Yeah. For me, I'm giving this one a five out of five. I, I love this serial. It is one of my all-time favorites. I... I like that it hinges around like an actual historical event and does it pretty mm -hmm. well. I love Richard Mace as a character. I just like a lot of things about it. Mm -hmm. I like anything with Nissa and Tegan. It's yeah, they're fun. Since it was the early the eighties in the BBC, like they have to mm -hmm. leave it subtext at this point, but they recently elevated it to canon text, like in the revival that they are romantically involved. Really? Oh, yeah. that's fun because I did not actually get that at all. Oh yeah, I, mean, I feel like, like they're they... not in the same place in a lot of true, like his for, because for this... Tegan's under uh, is captured for a long time. Yeah, but when they're when they're together, like when they are separated, they tend to disproportionately worry about each other more than they worry mm -hmm. about, say, mm -hmm. Adric or the Doctor. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. That's yeah. fun. So that's, yeah, it's pretty great. Also, they they share a bedroom. So right. Yeah. 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 And there is, I guess, there is like a bit right at the beginning where like, I don't know, I feel like maybe like Nissa's was sort of like massaging her head or something, mm -hmm. which was like, it, it felt very intimate and, you know, in without having the broader context of having seen either of them before, it wouldn't necessarily automatically be romantic, but it certainly could be. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where they, where they got in what little they could and then like yeah. later officially made it canon but it's it's one of oh, that's it's, awesome it's a nice touch i love i i love those two and anything involving yeah. them you know knowing that i'm gonna bump it up to a four nice they're getting they're getting it i'm getting an extra half point i'm giving an extra half point for that sweet cool but yeah no i like this cereal okay now the dog's got a sweet toy hi opie producer opie is now in the room as well and producer opie was in the room the whole time but usually she is angelic and silent unlike my yelling cat. <laughs> Carmen has opinions. Opie's just Carmen chilling. has lots of opinions. Yeah. Opie, Opie, just, Opie just wants to be here. Do you have any information for our listeners as to where they could find you on the internet? Uh, yeah. So I am, I tweet sometimes. I'm at Lizzie Strider. I've still, I've mentioned earlier my ongoing attempt to get this project off the ground. It's sort of the inverse media evil where instead mm -hmm. of like having an expert on medieval history, looking at different media in the medieval past, we go through Doctor Who and have experts on for the periods and mm -hmm. things that they go to. My biggest stumbling block so far is, be, is that I don't know anyone. <laughs> so feel free to message me on Twitter if you'd like to get in on this project. If you have some field of expertise like Roman history... 20th century history, mm -hmm. art history, archaeology, anthropology, etc., anything. They go to a lot of places and times and talk about a lot of stuff. 
in yeah. various episodes. I the other day I was watching a serial called City of Death, which is about an art theft. So like mm-hmm. it would be great to have an art historian on for that one. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I hope you're able to uh to work that out. I think it sounds like a great podcast. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and please rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. On Instagram, you can see the real-life versions of producers Carmen and Opie who have made their essential appearances. Finally, if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you, Elizabeth, for joining me again. Yeah, it was great to be here. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.